0: Hey friends, Abigail here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you that Savannah and I have started a book club designed especially for fiction writers. If you've been enjoying the episodes where we dig into the first chapters of Harry Potter books or any of the other first chapter deep dive episodes on Lit Match, you're going to really love our book club. It's called Book Notes and the idea behind it is simple. We all read the same book, And then we meet online to engage in a craft-based discussion to share our learnings so that we can, of course, have fun and improve our writing craft too. If this sounds like we're deconstructing our favorite stories to see how and why they work, that's because we are. Our first meeting was so much fun and we got so many requests to read a fantasy novel, so that's what we're doing this month. We've picked for our next book club meeting, which is on January 19th, to deconstruct one of my favorite books of all time, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. This book was on multiple bestseller lists. It was a book of the year finalist in 2020, and it has sat with me in emotional ways that I will explain during that book club meeting. So if you wanna join us or if you wanna learn more, go to savannagilbo.com book club, and you'll see all the details and Next Steps. One more time, come join us at savannagilbo.com slash book club. We hope to see you soon.
1: It's very clear in the first chapter that Elizabeth is very unhappy with her life. Yet we find out she is a TV star a job that I think many of us would say is enviable and glamorous and something somebody would like to have. But she's depressed and she admits that. And I really want to know how she got there because at the same time as she's admitting she's depressed and she is not happy with her life, she's throwing out these notes to her daughter that, that to me scream confidence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm wondering
1: how all of these things are existing in her at the same time that's exactly what hooked me
0: Aunt elizabeth thought doubts nothing about herself no she... and actually
1: bonnie Garmis explicitly said that multiple times when i interviewed her she said she knows exactly who she is she never questions herself and many women i feel like in life we don't live that way i think mm-hmm. women unfortunately question ourselves way too often and elizabeth is just not at all that person
0: Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, as well as write the best manuscript possible so that they can hook their dream literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is enthusiastic to help writers learn how to blend passion with business. Through this, we do various episodes like interviews with literary agents, interviews with authors, and more craft work like first chapter deep dive analysis, which I have another great episode to share with you today. I am overjoyed to share this episode. This book was one of my favorite, if not my favorite, read in 2022. Elizabeth Zott is the main character, and the book is Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmis. This book blew my mind and stole my heart, and Elizabeth Zott is a character that I know is not going anywhere for a long time in my special place of favorite characters. Also, I'm thrilled to have Sarah Dickinson join me today. This is going to be such a fun episode. Sarah isn't someone who usually analyzes stories so much as shares her reactions as a reader and does this in a professional setting. She's really fun, and she has this amazing podcast, which, of course, I'm going to share in the show notes. For a little more on Sarah, here's a quick bio. Sarah is the founder and host of the book podcast, Sarah's Bookshelves Live, where she interviews authors and other publishing industry professionals and recommends books with rotating co-hosts. Before starting her podcast, Sarah ran the blog, Sarah's Bookshelves, and she was also a two-time judge for Book of the Month. Prior to working in books, she worked in leadership development and financial services. Sarah lives in Virginia with her husband, two children, and orange tabby cat. She really does have a great podcast, and we'll talk about this. We actually have some insider conversations because she was lucky enough to actually talk to Bonnie herself about lessons in chemistry, and I'm so lucky to share Sarah with you and all the value that she adds to this discussion. Without further ado, I welcome and invite you to come listen to Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. I am thrilled to have you. This is going to be super fun. I have wanted to find someone to analyze the first chapters of Lessons in Chemistry for a while now. This is definitely one of my favorite reads, if not my favorite read in 2022. And I'm going to be bold and say one of my favorites of all time. So I love this book. And I'm excited that you love it, too. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Your podcast structure and what you do is so interesting. I've never seen anything like it, so I was intrigued to come on. And you definitely put my brain to the test. I read for pleasure, and then I report back to my listeners about what I think about a book. I definitely do not generally analyze from a more academic, structural perspective. So this
0: was interesting to go through. Absolutely. And I loved that it did test you a bit, but also we talked about how it's fun to have the reaction. So yeah. understanding how a reader reacts to something, these might be tools that we're using for a deep dive analysis, but also that reaction is organic and natural. So it's fun to hear how that existed with you. Absolutely. And I should
1: probably also say Lessons in Chemistry is one of my top three books of the year. It was in kind of a three horse race all year long we'll see how it shakes out, <laughs> who gets gold, silver, and bronze, or whether I even rank them like that. But I did get the opportunity to speak to Bonnie Garmus on my podcast, and she is absolutely lovely.
0: Amazing. And that's an amazing episode. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sarah, before we get into it, why don't you tell listeners all about you, what you do, because you do, you have this wonderful podcast. So tell us about your podcast. And I'd love to know more about that insider discussion with Bonnie.
1: My podcast is called Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I've been doing it for about four years. And we have a set episode structure, but we do depart from it fairly frequently. So our regular episodes where I interview an author or I interview sort of a behind-the-scenes insider from some corner of the book industry are about 30 minutes or so of discussion and interview, followed by a segment where my guest gives us their book recommendations. They talk about two old books they love. So, backlist two new books they love, one book they did not love, which many authors sidestep that one, <laughs> <laughs> and one upcoming release they are excited about.
0: Mm-hmm. What I love about your podcast is there's so much honesty with it, like the feedback and the reaction that you're getting. And I love that. Like, I can go to you and I know that you're going to give me your honest reaction so I can trust that that trust is clearly established in each of your episodes.
1: Yes, I definitely talk about books I don't like. When I think about talking about books on my podcast, my audience is readers, mm-hmm. and that is who I am catering to. So I try to obviously be very respectful when I talk about a book I don't like and be very concrete in why I didn't like it. But I'm not a show where you're just going to get the books that I liked. Mm-hmm. That was very important to me when I started the show.
0: No, yeah, and I think it's a good staple of what your show is and what to expect.
1: I should also say we do special episodes with sort of a rotating stable of co-hosts that I have. So we have quarterly previews where we preview our top books that are coming out over the next couple months. And then we circle back and tell everybody how those worked out for us mm-hmm. after we have read them. And then we also do things like a summer reading special, year-in specials, various other specials throughout the year. Fun.
0: Can listeners find you on every podcast? Yep. I am on every podcast
1: player. And I'm also on Instagram at Sarah's bookshelves. And that's Sarah with an H.
0: Excellent. I will include, of course, all of those notes in the show notes so you can find her. And I'll also include this wonderful episode with Bonnie. Tell me a little bit. I'm so jealous that you got to talk to Bonnie. She is so brilliant. This story is amazing. And I loved hearing the interview. I connected so deeply with everything that the two of you were sharing and saying. How was that experience? What was it like?
1: She was one of my favorite interviews I've done this year. She was very poised. She had had media training because she's a debut author. I actually asked her about this in a bonus episode for my paying patrons. She did have media training because I always wondered, do debut authors go through that type of stuff? Mm -hmm. How do they know what to say when they're doing the, the media rounds? And she was also one of the more interesting humans I've spoken to this year. And I think that comes out in the book as well. I mean, if you look at Elizabeth Zott, she takes up rowing as her hobby. Not a lot of women do that as their hobby. Mm Honey Garmus is a rower. She's an open water swimmer in her spare time. She used to be a copywriter, which really influenced the writing of the book. So she knew nothing about chemistry when she started writing. She does not cook. And I was like, why are you writing a book about cooking and chemistry?
0: Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting.
1: And she said, look, I used to be a copywriter, and my job was to write about things I knew nothing about. And the reason rowing got in the book was because it was the one thing she did know about, and she needed that last element to be
0: something she did not have to spend a lot of time researching. That is so interesting. You know, I didn't know much about rowing, and then after this book, it was one of those things on my first day of college orientation because I'm the right height, I think the crew coach saw me and was immediately like, I want you on the crew team because that's really important, like the height and the weight and things like matters with how the teamwork works. And
1: how tall are you?
0: I'm 5'8", 5'9". So I I was 5'9", and now I probably am shrinking because of age. But (laughs) I'm 5'8 as well. There you go. So so you probably, maybe you were trying to be recruited as well. (laughs) It was just so funny though, but I remember, I you know, I had been super involved in high school and it was a a. 4am practice and I was not looking for that in my (laughs) first year of college. And after reading this book, I'm disappointed about that decision. I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, I think that I would have learned so much from crew because it was much more than what I thought it was. You know, I just was thinking to myself, oh, it's just like rowing bones at 4am. I don't know if I want to do that, but there's so much with teamwork and precision and discipline. And it's like a lot of these amazing qualities that come out in this super fully fleshed out character of Elizabeth Zott. And I remember what, I think it was your podcast when you were talking to Bonnie, at some point you say, that you always call her Elizabeth Zott, that you never call her just Elizabeth. And totally. Bonnie like, and Bonnie was said, I'm glad that you do that because she cannot go by just Elizabeth. It has to be Elizabeth Zott. And so interesting is in this first chapter, we learn, of course, that Luscious Lizzie, when she's tagged with that name, it starts to belittle her. So I loved that you said that. Why do you think that? Because I'm with you. I, I only say Elizabeth Zott. What do you think that is about her? I think it's how she wrote the book. She refers to Elizabeth as Elizabeth Zott
1: throughout most of the book. And I think actually, think in the first two chapters, she actually, I, I think I remember seeing it and being like, oh, she writes it as Elizabeth Zott, too. Mm-hmm. I think in her discussion with Mr. Pine, she referred to herself as Elizabeth Zott. As Elizabeth Zott. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Madeline Zott comes across, too. Like, you'll see that sometimes yeah. with Madeline Zott. So So interesting with that. We are going to do an analysis of it. Obviously, both Sarah and I are gushing about this. We have both clearly read the full book. So spoilers might come out when we go through our discussion. I think that most listeners usually are disappointed about about that because it helps with the analysis and understanding how it speaks to big picture. Before we start with that, though, I am going to give a summary of the first chapter, and I'm actually going to give the summary of the first chapter and the second chapter, because when Sarah and I were both doing our analysis, we realized that we don't think the first chapter works as a fully fleshed out scene in the sense of how we are analyzing it for a value shift, a value change. But what I found really interesting is that I actually think that chapter two is a full scene and then chapter one really ends where chapter two is. So it's very interesting. The chapters are reversed in order there. So I've never seen that done, at least that I paid attention to, and I loved it. Tell
1: me if this is spoiling something we're going to get to later. But I thought it was really interesting when you and I were talking before we recorded or over email that you mentioned the first chapter actually felt like a prologue in disguise. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was absolutely correct. It was just this little snapshot of life in the Zot House. But in two pages, it told you so very much about Madeline, Elizabeth's daughter, and Elizabeth Sot as a character. Yes. And I just, she did such an astounding job telling me so much about these people in such a small space.
0: Absolutely, I agree with you. You know, i have seen these prologues in disguise in several books now. The Midnight Library has one. I have an episode on that with the first chapter of Deep Dive Analysis. That first chapter I call a prologue in disguise, even though it's labeled chapter one. That I know you're not a Harry Potter fan, but the Harry Potter has Harry Potter has several prologues in disguise throughout the series. So Sorcerer's Stone is a prologue in disguise. What's interesting though is in like something like Harry Potter, it is a fully fleshed out scene. And in The Midnight Library and Lessons in Chemistry, I feel like it's giving you a taste of exactly what you said, the character. So what is so interesting to me, because we do need to always be seeing on a scene level story movement, we need to see the story moving forward. If it's not moving forward, there can be an issue sometimes in how the structure is working. But in this case, I think that why these openings that don't have necessarily a fully fleshed out scene work and hook the reader, and when I say that, when I'm saying work, is because they make us ask a question. And you, on our emails, asked the exact same question that I was thinking, and that's why did she get to be this way? So it's a question of how did she get to be this way, or why is she here right now? And tell me about that, because I agree with you completely, and that's why I wanted to read forward.
1: It's very clear in the first chapter that Elizabeth is very unhappy with her life. Yet we find out she is a TV star, a job that I think many of us would say is enviable and glamorous and something somebody would like to have. But she's depressed and she admits that. And I really want to know how she got there, because at the same time as she's admitting she's depressed and she is not happy with her life, she's throwing out these notes to her daughter that that to me scream confidence. Mm hmm. And I'm wondering how all of these things are existing in her at the same time. That's exactly what hooked me.
0: Elizabeth Zott doubts nothing about herself. No, and actually,
1: Bonnie Garmus explicitly said that multiple times when I interviewed her. She said she knows exactly who she is. She never questions herself. And many women, I feel like in life, we don't live that way. I think Mm -hmm. women, unfortunately, question ourselves way too often. And Elizabeth is just not at all that person.
0: Yes. If we do um, analyze more of what an Elizabeth Zott is in that state of confidence, I think that because of society, oftentimes we're forced to accept limitations and that can crush the reality of how you exist. So your confidence might not be shattered, but you have limitations in how you can exist and exist fully. And that's exactly where Elizabeth Zott is as a human being in this world.
1: I think also sort of in real life, many women might succumb to society's expectations and change their behavior. She does not. Yes. She just is going to behave how she's going to behave. And exactly. she, she, she's an anomaly in that respect. And Bonnie, when I interviewed her, also said she's inspirational in that respect. She's somebody that Bonnie herself would like to be more like. And she doesn't. I asked her, I said, do you feel like
0: you're like Elizabeth? And she said no. And I wish I was. Yeah. And it's probably why she wrote her. You know, I think, yeah. I forget where it is now, if it was a blurb or something. But someone said along the lines of Elizabeth Zott is the fiction character that we want to be real. And yes, that is yes. exactly right. We need Elizabeth Zott in this world. So definitely interested in all of this. We have a hero who is severely depressed, but will go forward anyway. I think that's something different about her character.
1: And I think she's such a practical person that she's never going to wallow in her depression. She's going to make sure her daughter is taken care of and go to her job, and she is not going to fall apart, despite admitting over and over she's unhappy and
0: depressed. I'm so fascinated by this book in general, but this first chapter especially, and how it's creating this question of why. Some of my favorite stories do this. Hamilton is my favorite Broadway musical. It does the same thing. We understand That Burr is going to be the one to kill Hamilton in the end. So where the question is not about who kills him, but why does Burr kill him? (laughs) I love stories like that. Let's go ahead. Some of my
1: favorite type of books, like the how done it and the why done it, not the who done it and the what happened.
0: Yes, exactly. I am with you 100%. Let's talk about the summaries. Do you think I have mentioned previously that the first chapter does not suffice as a single scene based on the structure that we are going to use to analyze it. I do think that chapter one picks up where chapter two ends. Interesting to see that reverse. I will give you the summary of the first chapter regardless and explain then what happens in chapter two and you'll see what I'm talking about. In chapter one, we are introduced to Elizabeth Zott, who is defined as permanently depressed and certain that her life is over. Despite this certainty, she gets up each morning before dawn and prepares a lunch for her daughter. She writes a series of notes that provide guidance, always ensuing confidence. Madeline Zott then will take these notes and store them in a special shoebox after reading them because she doesn't want to take them to school. Madeline is extremely bright and could read through Dickens at age five, but pretends not to at school since she's afraid of being seen as irregular and she has seen firsthand how this has not worked out well for her mother. Madeline pretends to be asleep in bed each night when her mother tucks her in, whispers, sees the day, and drives to the studio to be the host of the popular cooking show, Supper at Six. And I just want to emphasize there, we do not get the sense that Madeline is ashamed of her mother in any way. We just get the sense that she understands that society has beaten Elizabeth Sot down to this place of depression, which is why she does take the notes seriously, but doesn't take them to school. Then you go into to chapter two, and what's so interesting is then chapter one, there's a lot of focus on Elizabeth Zott making her daughter Madeline lunch. And in chapter two, this is what sets the stage for the action of what Elizabeth Zott is going to do. Now, we also understand that she is the host of the popular show, Supper at Six. We will learn more about that, of course. But what happens is that Elizabeth Zott puts a lot of work into making a nutritious lunch for her daughter each day. She does not give her the typical PBJ. It's always full of bountiful, nutritious food that Elizabeth Stott has done the research and is going to be optimal for cognitive and physical development. So we're talking pieces of lasagna, zucchini bread, it's a kiwi sliced, it's all these great things, which is why Elizabeth Stott doesn't understand when her daughter Madeline why she's losing weight. Now Elizabeth thought it's very logical. She's not someone who's going to fester on the idea of something that's unlikely like if her daughter has a disease. She hasn't really shown any signs of early eating disorders, so she's going through her list and checking off all these factors that maybe could be possibilities but are not likely or not there. And then something happens that she learns that Madeline's friend Amanda Pine has been eating her lunch. So there you go. We learned that Amanda is one of the friends that is actually a really good friend to Madeline, and because all the kids are jealous of Madeline's lunch, Madeline shares this lunch with Amanda, and that's why she's now losing weight. Elizabeth Zott is not happy with this, and she wants to confront Mr. Pine, Amanda's father, in order to fix this issue. She tries to call Mr. Pine. He either is dodging or doesn't recognize or pick up her calls. So she confronts him actually at the studio that he works in about how his daughter is eating her lunch. Mr. Pine is taken away by all of this. We also know that Elizabeth Zott is stunning. She is physically attractive as well as extremely confident. She gives off this it factor. And at the end of this conversation, Mr. Pine offers Elizabeth Zott a position as the cooking host of the show Supper at Six. And then you have a little bit of a break and we learned that not only is Elizabeth a sensation, but there's a quote about the lines about how when she sits down, when she has set the table, the nation sits down to eat. And they even have a quote from Lyndon Johnson who says something that she knows that she's doing. It's explained that she has this it factor, but also no one can really understand her. She creates meals that are hearty and full of nutrition and can be cooked in under an hour. So all of these things that are, again, really reflect her character, very practical. And two years after the show, Elizabeth Zott is depressed because there has been this article that has been released about the journalist tags and nicknames saying Luscious Lizzie, and that sticks. And it really belittles Elizabeth Zott, who as a research chemist decided to give up research chemistry in order to take this job because she was a single mother and needed to raise her child and this position was going to pay better. So everything that she's been applying her intelligence as a chemist into the cooking has now been belittled by this name. And that's really where you can see when we read chapter one where we're leaving off. So another thing that's really interesting about that is at the very end of chapter two, she's wondering how she got to this state of depression and we learn the name of a man, Halvin, who we then will, in chapter three, go back in time to start to understand the beginnings of their relationship and how she comes to be.
1: I particularly love the last lines of both of these chapters. thought they were huge hooks. The last line of chapter one, the show was called Supper at Six, and Elizabeth Zott was its indisputable star. And then the last line of chapter two, his name was Calvin Evans. To me, those lines are so simple, but they are massive hooks. And I just... Having loved this book so much, but also I read it almost a year ago, so the details were a little bit hazy when I went back to reread the first two chapters and go through this exercise. I am blown away now, going back and reading the first two chapters, also having read the whole book, seeing how much she
0: encapsulates and sets us up for the rest of the story. If you need an example of first chapters, this one is it. We'll go ahead and move into the analysis. As always, we'll start with the big picture, seven key questions to use to analyze your first chapter all coming from Pauline Munee's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then after the big picture questions, we'll move into the scene structure. So to start with the big picture, the first question focuses on genre. And the question is, what kind of story is it?
1: One would think this would be an easy question. It is not. I categorize this book as historical fiction. It's set in 1960s California. You can feel that it's set in the 60s. However, you can also feel it is a very modern story. It does not feel like historical fiction in the traditional way. And I think that's mainly due to Elizabeth Zott as a character. But I think something that I have done with my Patreon community kind of illustrates this. I did a genre awards for the end of the year, and everybody had to submit their favorite book in each genre. Well, Lessons in Chemistry was categorized by various people as historical fiction, as light fiction, as literary fiction. as contemporary fiction. It's all over the place,
0: but I also think that's really what makes it unique. This cannot be easily put in a box. I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of genre blending going on. At its heart, I would call this, well, I guess I like to, and I always emphasize this, I look at genre in two ways. I look at commercial genre, so how something is marketed, and I look at content genre, so the story type, how something is written. So in a commercial genre, that would be more of this historical fiction, contemporary fiction, all that. I would place it in upmarket fiction. I think that it's this blend of commercial and literary. I think that it really has some literary techniques and that it plays around with structure and the language is excellent, but also it it appeals to a mass audience. So I am I think it's the baby of the two. I think it's upmarket. But I can see historical elements in the sense that we the 1960s setting is... Imperative to what we need here. You cannot have this in any other setting than the 1960s. Like it works well in that setting. But I don't imagine it something as strongly historical fiction as something like Jojo Moy's The Giver of Stars or Kristen Hanna's The Four Winds. Like those are more clearly historical fiction with an upmarket or commercial appeal to me than this one. This one feels more it, it's just, it's so character driven but the setting is impacting it and conflicting with it. So it's I can see why people would push it in that direction. But yeah, I would probably say it's upmarket fiction. And then as a content genre, the story types that we're looking at, it's a blend, of course, again. When I look at stories like this, especially in upmarket, I tend to see that they're usually emotionally driven. Their character arcs are what really drives the story. They drive the plot. But of course, the character can't change or the character isn't interesting if plot doesn't challenge the character because Elizabeth thought doesn't really change. So, so she's one of those. I
1: ask, I'm oh, sorry.
0: No, go I ahead. Did As... ask,
1: I did ask her why she set this in the 1960s. And she had a very concrete answer. And it was when she started writing this book, she had come out of a meeting where she had been belittled, talked over, mm-hmm. and she sat down and wrote the beginning of this book. And she said, I had to write this in the 60s because it would have been too depressing to write it in present day, even though as she was talking to readers after it came out, she talked to some female scientists and they said their lab is currently exactly like the lab she depicted in the book in the 1960s. I
0: remember you talking to her about that, and it was discouraging to hear that things have not changed that much, but also I'm not surprised to hear that, although there has been some progress. So it's sure, but yeah. yeah, really interesting to know her motivation behind it, too. My mom is a is a chemist, and she was born in 1960. So it'd be interesting, like kind of shed some light. I was reading this, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna need to get this one for my mom (laughs) because she probably experienced a lot of this. Like she was a pharmacist, and she started out as a pharmacist, so she does chemistry, and she taught, ended up teaching chemistry, but did pharmacy and did bio, green chemistry, and all that stuff. So all of this like era, not quite in the heart of it. Elizabeth Zott is working in the 1960s versus being born, but it's interesting to kind of wrap my head around different experiences. All that being said, so content genre, when I'm thinking story type, I do also think it's a blend. I think it's emotionally driven, but this isn't a traditional worldview story as an internal arc. Elizabeth Zott doesn't really have a black and white view that needs to be changed at the end of the story. I think it's more so that she knows exactly who she is what she's going for, and then it's the characters around her who change. So I see this her as an internal arc more for her in what I would classify as a status story and it's a status admiration story. So basically it is a character who stands their ground in their values and beliefs and sets forth towards success in being a chemist, ideally gaining respect as a chemist and working and being able to do that in her greatest endeavors. But I think that ultimately society is impacting that too. So I think that we have a character here who is striving for success in whatever terms that she would define that is, probably being a research chemist that is respected and allowed to do what she wants to do. But she has several barriers that are going to challenge her that come in with all of these external factors, like her performance genre. So we have a work environment setting here. She wants to be a research chemist. And throughout the story, she's going to be challenged with work barriers that definitely discriminate and oppress the women, specifically the women scientists in these industries. And then also we can see society factors. So there's an imbalance of power and how the character navigates power in the force of that work environment. So those are the ones that stood out the strongest to me. What do you think about that, Sarah? Do those sound like they fit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And especially what you were saying about the status and the inspiration. I mean she this is cheating, but she flat out told us that was her intention. <laughs> <That> <laughs> Elizabeth Zott was, in fact, an inspirational character
0: in her yes, mind. Yes, that's a big thing with status admiration in, in general. When I think of other characters that work in this way, Sarah in The Little Princess would be a character who would be a status admiration character. I'd say Joe in Little Women, where you have these characters who are faced. It's not that they aren't challenged with their beliefs. You're not going to Elizabeth Zott doesn't want to be depressed. She's definitely depressed, but that's not her goal. Her goal was to thrive as a research chemist and to be respected for that. And part of the reason why she so strongly and firmly refuses to marry Calvin Evans, despite their love for another, is because she's afraid that the second that she marries him, that anything that she achieves as a scientist will be discredited and given to him because he is also a research chemist. She firmly stands in her values and her beliefs. And that is difficult because society doesn't want it to be that way. And I think that that's the whole thing that makes her admirable and inspirational because she's willing to withstand such adversity in order to stand by her values, which is that she deserves respect. She is working towards what she wants to say is her success level. And I would just say doing the best that she can, achieving the most as she can as a research chemist.
1: And you do see her pay a price for that, which I think reflects the real world. She's beating to a different drum. And when
0: you don't step in line, you do pay a price for that. I mean, case in point, after the sexual assault, she basically is tossed out of that program. So, yeah. yeah,
1: You get your yeah. work stolen from her. We're in, now we're into spoilers, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> it's an extremely heartbreaking plot at times of what well, she has to suffer through.
1: This just occurred to me in the moment, but. What's interesting is her job at the lab, she was constantly being pushed down and not giving the credit for her work. She then went on to take a job where she is getting the credit. Like Mm -hmm. she is front and center by the nature of the job she took being the star of a TV show. Yes. That's her face that she's on the camera. She is getting this credit, which i never kind of put together before this very moment. But
0: yeah, I love what you're putting out there because it moves us into the second question which deals with plot. And the question is, what is the story really about?
1: So I kind of have two levels to this. To me, this is about Elizabeth Thought It's a completely character-driven story. It is about a woman who has very firm beliefs in the way that things should be done that don't necessarily line up with societies. She is really pushed down by the patriarchy and she is going to fight against that in whatever venue she is operating in. So whether it's a TV show whether it's the chemistry lab, whether it's at home with Madeline. And kind of secondarily for me, this is also a story about how Elizabeth got to be the way she is. Why is she depressed? Why is she unhappy with her life given she has a successful career? She's got a daughter she loves. And also how, going back to this dichotomy we talked about of her personality, how is this seemingly very smart, very driven, very successful, very confident woman also
0: so depressed exactly that i think this is what the first chapter does because the first chapter establishes the overarching reigning question i think of this story is something along the lines of how does such a confident competent woman fall into such a deep depression when she has seemingly everything that she could ever ask for as the host of this television show We're curious about this because we can see how grounded Elizabeth Zott is in this first chapter. And she's not materialistic. She is not bathing in her fame and then is being depressed inside of her fame. She doesn't want this fame, or even if she has this fame, it doesn't matter to her. The fame isn't really why she's depressed. So you get the sense of that. And then the matter is, okay, so how did you get to this place? Like there's something more to your character, what's driving us. And I agree with you completely about the patriarchy. I wrote down, I see this story as a woman who refuses to conform to society's expectations of the traditional female role in the 60s, someone who works against the patriarchy, but is also forced to tolerate it in order to survive. There's also a strong love story subplot and much on motherhood, and how to balance that in a society that demands and belittles her personal and professional achievements. So I think that on the greater side of this question is that's the big picture story. There's going to be a lot that we have to uncover with the layers of this, but all of those layers are tethered to this overarching question of how did she get to be this way and why do we care about that?
1: I agree completely.
0: The third question deals with point of view, and the question is, who is telling the story?
1: It's a third-person narrator, and you do—let me know if I'm using this terminology correctly. Though it is a third-person narrator, you do sort of see different characters' perspectives along the way. I really—especially in the first two chapters, I really loved how this allowed for outside commentary about Elizabeth and Madeline. This omniscient narrator can commentate on Elizabeth, on what she's doing, on her personality, and the same with Madeline. And I think that really sets up the story nicely. And of course, you're going to mention another narrator that comes along in the story, which (laughs) I absolutely loved. It's done so well. Very untraditional. It's done so well. So it's. It really is. And I did talk to her about that as well.
0: I know. That's one of my favorite parts of that conversation. I'm also a huge dog lover. So. I agree. It's omniscient. I would say it's omniscient, but then we do get close with certain characters. So it's really interesting is that Bonnie does this amazing job at having an authorial voice in the narratives. So you can see that we have this, this authorial narrator who's going to guide us through all the point of views. But I think it's crucial that we do see these outside perspectives. If this was a third person close narrative, with us sticking closely to the protagonist, Elizabeth Saw only, I don't think we get the magic of what this story really is. And I think that part of that is because Elizabeth Saw is so confident. So it would be dealing mostly with her frustrations and intolerance of anything that's not logical. It might be very grating to read as a reader. <laughs> right. I think, but part of it, she obviously goes through life and she just bats away anyone who has these comments that are <laughs> ridiculous to her. So she's able to just bat that away. I'm picturing her just hand motioning like like there's a hummingbird buzzing by her ear. Oh, yeah. I'm swatting at it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's like everything. It's just like, no, you're not worth my time. Yeah, exactly. she She definitely can just go through life with that. But part of the challenge of this is also understanding you get Madeline's side of this. She understands that life hasn't gone well for her mother. So the average reader emulates Elizabeth Zott, but isn't Elizabeth Zott. So she's a model for us. But we need to understand from the outside perspectives why everything is so complicated and complex around her and how she deals with that. The adversity is harder.
1: I think the juxtaposition of Madeline does want to fit in at
0: Mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm.
1: Elizabeth kind of is okay with not fitting in. She doesn't really care. But Madeline does want to fit in. I get the sense that she might not quite be willing to live the way
0: Elizabeth does, at least at her current age. Then, of course, you mentioned my favorite point of view is 630, who is Elizabeth's dog. And I love dogs. So anytime a dog can come into a story, I am overjoyed. But what is so interesting, I've also been warned by literary agents in my early, early years of writing that very few writers can pull off dogs well. Basically, it doesn't come off as authentic. And I think that Bonnie nails it. 630s observance of Elizabeth's thought, I think, is the point of view that flushes out the most authenticity of her character above anyone else. It was a really amazing strategy that Bonnie tackled and one that I'm in awe of. So I know you had talked to her about that.
1: I did. Yeah. I asked her, how did you decide to include 630's perspective and humanize him as an animal? I do think this is my personal opinion as a reader. I think inanimate objects and or animals as Mm -hmm. narrators can go horribly wrong. I think it could come off as really cheesy. It can pull you out of the story. That was not the case here. And she said that she had a dog named Friday. And Friday did exhibit this understanding of human words. Like she would be talking about how she lost her keys and he would go with his nose, nudge over her pocketbook to where her keys would fall out. And She said she used Friday as a model for 630. She also did say that the voice just kind of came to her. And so she Mm -hmm. wrote it down and then she's like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. She definitely had reservations about including 630's voice. But then it would kind of come to her again and she kept at it. And that's sort of how it ended up on the page.
0: Well, I am thrilled. This book is great, but this book is amazing because that point of view is in there. Yeah. And
1: six thirty does have an Instagram account, by the way, just
0: well f y I have to go follow six thirty. I also love that she used Friday, and I've just always been fascinated by dogs in general and how they do just have this awareness. sometimes we just take for granted, you know, so she did really cool.
1: mention she didn't want to humanize the dog too yeah. much. She mentioned yeah. that when I talked to her as well.
0: well, I think that's one of the things that she does really well, because yeah. you can see six thirty is navigating this world and through 630's perspective and what right. 630 understands is in this world for instance 630 is trained to snip bombs you can tell that he's really intelligent but that even plays in a sense of how people can overlook things and 630 can pick up on things and that adds suspense to the story in certain moments i think elizabeth thought's awareness of 630's ability to pick up language and to challenge him with yeah. that speaks a lot about her character and their relationship together there was a respect between the two and an appreciation. I loved that.
1: Another thing that just struck me in the moment that 630 has this ability to kind of pick up human language much better than other dogs. And also Madeline is this intrepid reader of Dickens at age five. I know. Just reinforcing the the focus on language
0: in the household. Question number four deals with character. And this question is, which character should readers care about the most based on the first chapter?
1: Finally, an easy one. (laughs) I think it's crystal clear that we care about Elizabeth Zott. And I think Madeline also we're supposed to care about, but she's sort of a JV player here. And Elizabeth Zott is definitely the star.
0: Yeah. If you just take chapter one, you mentioned this through email, Sarah, yeah. is that Madeline actually plays, she has more of the space, more percentage of the POV in that first chapter than Elizabeth. We She does. Than yeah. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Zott. So we do see... Elizabeth Zott's point of view for a while when she's doing the notes and making the lunch, but most of it is through Madeline in her observations of her mother and how she goes about her day as her mother's going about her day. So what's really interesting is that through Madeline, and you can see that there's there's an admiration and affection from Madeline for her mother. I felt that at least. I felt that yes, there was this. And what's interesting is that at the end of chapter two, when we learn about the tag name of Luscious Lizzie, you also learn that Elizabeth Zott feels ashamed, in particular, in front of her daughter. So I found that a really important link between chapter one and chapter two is that I did not get the sense that Madeline is ashamed in any way, but Elizabeth Zott feels ashamed about this belittling of her title when she knows that she is so much more and deserves respect for who she is and what she's earned in this world through hard work and intelligence and stripe and all that's just summed up in just being a face on a television show. So I care about that character, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. So. She She's my number one character of 2022. No one else even close.
0: Question number five deals with setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place?
1: Overall, we're in the 1960s in Southern California. And the first chapter is taking place in Elizabeth and Madeline's home. And then that kind of wheels right into the second chapter where Elizabeth goes to the TV studio to confront Mr. Pine about his daughter, Amanda, stealing Madeline's
0: lunch. And I think that the setting of California is important because that's where television is growing right now. So she needed to be there in order to get this supper at six position. If she was a research scientist confronting Mr. Pine in another state, that maybe that wouldn't have been the case. So Mr. Pine's job is really important to what unfolds with Elizabeth Saw in her life and her career. Such a good point. You're not going
1: to find a TV studio in Virginia, where I not, live.
0: Not 1960. <laughs> no, no. One. no. <laughs> not one that would be the sensation of something. Right. Like six, absolutely. Right? And then question number six is dealing with core emotion. And the question is how should readers feel about what's happening?
1: I personally felt a deep empathy for both Elizabeth and for Madeline for mm. the fact that Elizabeth is a depressed single mother working a glamorous job. It appears to the reader she appears to hate, and for the fact that Madeline is this really smart, precocious kid who is clearly unappreciated and a bit of an outcast at school. I'm also feeling a lot of empathy for the daily belittling that Elizabeth experiences for being a woman. That's sort of illustrated in the way that Mr. Pine reacts to her when she goes to confront him.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's amplified in chapter two. You can see that Elizabeth Zott is going to stand her ground and demand respect. And she's going to fight for what she wants and what she believes in. And she is po'd that Amanda is eating her daughter's lunch that she puts a lot of time and thought into. And you can even see like how she interacts with Mr. Pine in the sense of I know that you probably put a lot of thought into the lunches that you make, don't you? You can see her way of really asserting herself in the conversation. And yet, really like Mr. Pine. You're going to learn a lot more about Mr. Pine that you're going to be drawn to his character. But I think that when he first meets her, he does the judgment that and everyone does with Elizabeth Zott. And I believe in the conversation with Bonnie, you talked about why it was important that Elizabeth Zott was attractive. Go ahead. Why don't you share about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So she said she had to make Elizabeth attractive because she would never have been hired to be a TV host if she was not.
0: And anyone who has been they prioritized by their looks instead of their brains when they value their brains, right? that belittling and that judgment and that lack of respect, as a core emotion, I'm irritated for her. I'm annoyed. I'm upset about it. There's those emotions going on where I'm like, you deserve your justice. <laughs> you know, like you deserve your respect. And at the same time, I'm worried about her and I have that empathy because I know that She's forced to live in a society that refuses to accept her for who she is, but she will stand her ground and not conform to society's expectations of what is a successful woman in their minds. And
1: I think that empathy sort of led me to I'm rooting for her. Like I'm in the stands cheering for her to succeed and for her to come out on top of all these people that have been belittling her.
0: Absolutely. And that's where I think like when we talk about performance stories, there's usually a core emotion of triumph if you can succeed. And if, if you don't, then, you know, what's the opposite of triumph? So,
1: <laughs> Failure.
0: <laughs> yeah, failure. Exactly. So I think that you're, you're hoping for that. And what's so interesting is that Elizabeth Zott has succeeded, but she's not succeeded in her terms and what she defines as success. So your heart mourns for her. Paper and thin th- success. Number seven deals with stakes. And the question is, what are the stakes and why should readers care about what happens next?
1: Personally, I cared because, as I mentioned earlier, I really began to root for them. Mm -hmm. I want them to come out on top. I want them to show all the haters who's boss. And I also want to know how Elizabeth ended up as the star of this show yet is so unhappy and ended up in a job that was so counterintuitive to her personality and expertise.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, for me, the dominating stakes for me are psychological stakes, at least as they're proposed in chapter one. We know the stakes are on the line about depression and her psychological health. We're not worried about her becoming, I guess, I'm not worried about her physical safety. I think when you're learning in chapter two. So the stakes when she takes this job, there are stakes if she gives up her job as a research chemist in order to be this television host that I think psychological stakes are dealt with that, but also what will that mean for her as a career? So I think that there are also a professional stakes there. So I'd say the dominating stakes for me are not physical, they're psychological and professional stakes and that you understand that pretty clearly with psychological stakes set up in chapter one and professional stakes set up in chapter two but reinforced by, again, those psychological stakes after the Luscious Lizzie article comes out.
1: I think also the stakes in this book connect back to the reader, because especially if the reader is a woman, has probably experienced some form of this on some lesser terms, maybe maybe not lesser terms in their real life.
0: And they're sort of applying Elizabeth's stakes to themselves as they read. I mean, you look at this, Elizabeth, why does she, she doesn't really, and we'll get into this when we get into the scene structure, she doesn't want this television job. She has no desire for this job, but it pays better. And the reality is that she is a mother who cares about her daughter. And that is going to give her more money to support her daughter as a single mother. So, And we
1: also know she's a very practical person. So her decision-making on how she decided to take a job totally jives with her character, that we've, yeah. what we've learned so far about her.
0: And that's so interesting because her practicality, her sense of reasoning overcomes her heart, but her heart never dies. So I remember, I don't know why this just came to me, very old movie, First Night with Richard Gere, Sean Connery, its author, Guinevere Lancelot. And Guinevere at one point says to Arthur, if it's a fight between her logic or her heart, she's like, you have the better half because my logic is stronger than my heart. But of course your heart always, you can't control your heart. Your emotions are your emotions. So that's really interesting to see. I think that's part of what makes Elizabeth so complex as a character.
1: Would it make sense to share at this point, Bonnie, I asked her, what message do you want women to take from this book? And what message do you want men to take from this book as sort of a stakes element as well? I'd love to hear it. Okay. So I asked her that question. And because to me, when I read this book, I closed it. And sometimes when I read a book, I'm like, oh, I loved that story. I cared about the characters. But what was the point of the book? This book, I closed the book and the point of the book was so crystal clear and obvious and just shining a bright light in my face. So I asked her, what was the message you want women to take from this book? And she said, I want women to know that individuals can affect change. She's showing you via Elizabeth Zott that one person can fight the system, even though you might feel sort of overwhelmed. Oh, I'm just one person. I can't do anything. That's not the case. Now for men, The message she wanted men to take away is that sexism is not dead. It is not a thing of the past. It still happens in workplaces. And that a lot of men think, she said that a reaction she had gotten from men to her book was, oh my gosh, well, I'm so glad that doesn't happen anymore. I'm so glad my daughter will not have to experience this. And she said, oh no, no, this book wouldn't resonate with so many women now if it was dead and if it didn't happen anymore.
0: Yeah. I'm super shoulder shrugging here. I love her messages. Those messages are pretty obvious to me. So it's, I hope that men read this book because they can see a taste of what it is in the work environment and in just society in general and be advocates and supporters of women who are trying to, we all need to move the pet forward. So I also really resonate strongly with that idea of one person can make a huge difference. And someone like Elizabeth Zott, I think at the end of the day, she probably wouldn't even think that she made that huge difference. But she did because she changed other characters around her most closely, her daughter. So I think that even sometimes when we think that our efforts are effortless, we have to do it anyway. We have to move forward anyway. It's an
1: interesting point, I think. I don't think, and this is, I'm extrapolating on a fictional character's motives right now. But my understanding of who she is as a person, I don't think she even was intentionally out to change the patriarchy. Mm -mm, mm -mm. She was just making these practical decisions.
0: I agree with you. One of my favorite parts in the book is when she is on the show, she will address people, women in particular, in the audience. And there is this one mother who is a mother of I forget how many, but multiple children who wanted to be a heart surgeon. And she thinks that her time is up, that she missed that window. And Elizabeth Zott speaks directly to her on camera and encourages her to go back. And she does and becomes a heart surgeon when she comes back to tell her there's a round of applause in the audience. And it's like, that's what it's about. That's the inspiration right there. So with all of that, we have the big picture. Let's move into the scene structure analysis. Very quickly, before we go into the five commandments and breaking down scene structure, I mentioned that I will be doing this For chapter two and not chapter one, as I think that there's no actual value shift in chapter one. I think Elizabeth Zott starts depressed and ends depressed. I think that there's not even really a negative to double negative in that first chapter. I think that we're getting a reflection of big question that drives us forward in the story, and that chapter one is actually where we pick up at the end of chapter two. So how I've structured it, I've actually used the structure to analyze chapter two, and then I add chapter one at the end of chapter two. So it's a little odd way of analyzing for me. What did you think, Sarah? Is it more a...
1: chronologically, one okay. and two what flowing into each other directly.
0: Okay. So as we talk, we'll just explain that okay. when we go forward. Yeah. And before we get into that, I do like to ask three quick questions, three Socratic questions that we can talk about. What are the characters literally doing? And how does that change from the beginning to the end? So this is focusing on an external value shift. So literally what happens?
1: Elizabeth packs Madeline's lunch, which includes putting sort of inspirational notes in the lunch. Madeline removes the notes from her lunch and hides them at home because she doesn't want to reveal at school that she is an early reader. And this is now continuing into Chapter 2. Elizabeth confronts Mr. Pine about Amanda eating Madeline's lunch. And Mr. Pine then gets the idea for Supper at Six from Elizabeth's offhand comment Does anyone have have the time to teach
0: the entire nation to make food that matters? Yes. And I'm going to just say yes to that because that is perfect as a literal change. If I were to look at the value change on the most literal scale, you could say something in chapter two and say you add on chapter one there as well. She goes from a research chemist to a television cooking host. So I think that that's where the most literal change. You could also say something as literal as from her home to Mr. Pine's office, but... There you go, on the most literal level. The second question is a really important question because this one establishes a character's goal. And a goal is how we start to understand why a story moves forward and how a character is challenged and put into a crisis in the actual scene structure itself. So the question, what does the main character in the scene want? What is their goal? And how does this change or evolve from beginning to end? What's that internal shift that changes with it?
1: As a literal initial goal, I had Elizabeth would like Amanda to stop eating Madeline's lunch. Now, taking that a step further, I would say, and this gets into the internal value change, I would say, and this is maybe even subconscious on Elizabeth's part, her goal is to get the rest of society, particularly men, to figure out how to nourish their families so they can stop bothering her with tasks they should be doing for themselves. So that's
0: really interesting because that second part there, I would say that that is a goal that evolves with the scene. Because that's I agree with you. But I think that when I'm starting off and I'm th- trying to ask myself, what would be a, when I'm thinking about goals, how is an inciting incident either going to create this goal or disturb this goal? That's where I was actually debating between a couple things, because one of them was Elizabeth wants her daughter to eat a healthy, balanced lunch. Ah. And and then I was like, well, that could be interrupted by her losing weight. But then I also was thinking to myself, if I choose that as the goal, though, that's kind of more backstory. It's a quick snippet of backstory because she's reflecting on this. The action in the actual scene is her confronting Mr. Pine. So then I was thinking to myself, the other goal that I could choose from is she wants to prevent Amanda Pines from eating her daughter Madeline's lunch. And then that would impact the story movement forward. I sat with both of them. Because I think that they both exist. I think that if I'm going to choose to focus on the present action, I have to choose that she wants to prevent Amanda Pines from eating her daughter's lunch. And that's where I go from. And then I think the value shift internally that I'm going to work with is something along the lines of like irritated or angry. And this is where I see I always say I I can't don't worry about getting perfect words with this. It's more about (laughs) can you can you say that there is a change in some way because I don't love my words here, but I'm saying like you're ir- you're ir- angry and irritated, willing to tolerate, but now I like what you're saying there more about the sense of she wants men to just know how to prepare a healthy lunch for their children. So brainstorm here with me a bit. What do you think that internal value change would be if she goes from, let's say we use the goal of she wants to stop Amanda from eating her lunch? What would be her internal shift from the beginning to the end? Based on what you just said, there she wants men to know how to do this. Ooh, this is a challenging. One. I know it's hard. The words are this is words, hard. One. Yeah, okay. I'm. I'm thinking out loud here. Let's see. If I were to say what was changing from the beginning to the end of the value, what do you think that would be as an internal change?
1: This is a shot in the dark <laughs> for me. It was sort of a small irritation with Madeline's lunch getting eaten by Amanda. Mm -hmm. to this small irritation becoming a little microcosm for Elizabeth Zott's massive beef with society in general, her main overlying beef in
0: life. Yes. Okay, so I like that way more. So I'd say something like irritated about a lunch to irritated about a patriarchy.
1: Just the smallest grain of sand that illustrates a massive
0: sandcastle. Absolutely. Okay, I like that. And then we have question three, which deals with how does the change in the scene impact the big picture or that big value shift? So why do you think that chapter two, chapter one, how do they impact the big picture? So her encounter with Mr. Pine, first
1: of all, from like a straight up plot perspective, just sets up the entire creation of Summer at Six. Yes. Both the idea for the show from Pine's perspective, which is teach viewers how to make food that matters, which is not at all Elizabeth's spin on the show. Elizabeth's spin on the show is she gets to put her chemistry knowledge to work, which is important in her. She has a lot of pride in her chemistry work. And she's going to take this opportunity to teach people to make food that matters
0: for her own purposes, which Mm -hmm. is to show women how to take up space in the world. That's great. I had something similar. I said, this is the story of why Elizabeth got to the place where she is. So essentially, that's how it's setting it up. I said, she's a television chef who is a sensation and an institution, but also belittled and depressed. So I said, combining chapters one and two, we see Elizabeth Zott depressed already two years into the show and how she gets to this position by confronting Mr. Pine. She gets the job that will ultimately bring her that fame, but not the desires that she actually wants, and therefore that leads to her depression. Not really that leads to the depression, but the belittling of who she is and her talents and her intelligence is overseen for what I guess society is valuing her more. They can't really understand her but they like her. It's just emphasizing, it's exasperating everything that she struggled with her whole life. I'd call this the performance and status story, society story impacts it as well with this shift externally being something like respect to shame. And the reason why I'd say that is because I think that she is demanding respect and deserves that respect in the beginning. But that last paragraph, and it's why my heart mourns for her, is because she feels ashamed in front of her daughter because of luscious Lizzie. And it's not because of anything that she's done, but of how society has decided to label her.
1: Well, and I think also the progression to the TV show illuminates that there are many, many women out there who do admire her.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's just
1: bringing them out of the woodwork, where she had sort of felt alone in this prior to taking the job on the show. Now all of these people that may not take the action that she does to be like her in their hearts at least feel that way.
0: Yes. And that's reemphasized by her famous line at the end, children set the table, your mother needs a minute for herself. She's famous for that last line. So we can, women understand her, they relate to her, they see what she's doing and they believe in what she's doing. And yet in society on the grander scale of the patriarchy, she's still seen as this woman that can't be understood and is belittled. That takes us into the five commandments and the five commandments we'll walk through quickly. But basically this is a string structure. These are scene structure tools what, that a writer can use in order to identify if something feels off, meaning that the story isn't moving forward or the character's not fully developed, all of which is necessary in order to have the plot work as well as make us care about the characters. The first of these is the inciting incident. This is a causal or coincidental unexpected disturbance that either establishes the goal for the character or forces them to change their approach and how they're going to achieve their goal.
1: I was vacillating between two different ones. Number one, Amanda eats Madeline's lunch over a long period of time. And number two, Mr. Pine does not answer Elizabeth Zott's phone calls when she tries to confront him about his daughter eating Madeline's lunch.
0: Okay, so this is really interesting because I also debated and I think it's dependent on what I had been talking about earlier, if you're doing it based on the action or some of the backstory woven artfully into yes. the into the this action. This was
1: a tough one to do.
0: Yeah, because the, the two chapters were so intertwined. Right. This is what I ever initially written. Madeline loses weight question mark, at Amanda's soft-stained lips question mark, Mr. Pine won't return her calls question mark. <laughs> and I think I'm going to choose Mr. Pine won't return her calls. Because that seems like the most active in the scene of chapter two to start the movement towards confronting Mr. Fines, Because he doesn't answer calls, she needs to go find him in the studio. That's why I would choose that as the unexpected disturbance. All that to say, it's extremely important that in within the action of the exposition before that moment, we have Madeline, even though it's kind of like we're being told this, this is what's happened that's led us to this moment, that Madeline was coming home and losing weight and that... Finally, Elizabeth Zott figured out what was going on because she saw Amanda's soft-stained lips, which led to her questioning Madeline. But I think as the inciting instant that I would choose for the action of the scene, it would be Mr. Pine not turning her phone calls. Then we have a turning point, and this is an action or a revelation that forces a character into a crisis decision, which is a best bad choice or an irreconcilable goods decision. And ultimately, this turning point Is significant because it is not like other conflicts where a character can just ignore their crisis and things will go about as they are going about. Even to ignore a crisis leads to consequences, and consequences can be good or negative depending on what the crisis question is. What do you think the turning point for the scene is, and then how do you think that creates a crisis question or decision?
1: Once we included chapter two in our analysis, I agreed with everything you had put in your notes. So. I first of all think this is for Elizabeth. I think it is, Mr. Pine asks Elizabeth Zott to be the separate six host. And I think it's a best bad choice for Elizabeth. Yes. Yeah. She's doing work she loves at her chemistry lab, but also being treated terribly. So that's a bad choice to stay at her current job. Or she can take this other job that pays well, which is good, but also she's not really interested in doing this job. That's Two right. bad choices to choose from.
0: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I think that if you were to look at chapter one, you don't really find a crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I don't think it works at the scene level. I was trying to
1: invent something out of just chapter one in the beginning.
0: (laughs) But I think this is really important to note to writers because you should be trying to add a crisis. You shouldn't be trying to force something in in a way that it shouldn't work. So it's this idea of like, look at this, like how this actually kind of worked in a way of chapter two is having this. And then chapter one is really the aftermath of chapter two. So I think that in most cases, you do need scene structure in order. But to I will the say, forward. and this mm-hmm. might
1: be in, an antithesis to the entire point of the show, <laughs> but as a reader, I loved the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry. Me it too. got me interested in the book. I was hooked. And it also gave me such a strong sense of the voice of the story, which for me is one of the most important things in a book I read, even though it didn't have every... One of the steps, I still was hooked into reading this book.
0: I'm going to build on that because I don't think it's an antithesis to the show. I think that in the first (laughs) chapter, I think on a scene by scene level, if you were to plot out each of the scenes in the story, most of them, if not 9.9 out of 10 of them, need to have the scene structure in order for the story to move forward. Right. However, in this case of Lessons in Chemistry, the first chapter had a different sense of agency. The first yeah. chapter had a sense of establishing voice, of establishing tone and establishing the big question through character. So Absolutely. it gave you a taste. And I've seen novels that do that. They give you a taste so that you move forward. And that's why they kind of focus these prologues in disguise, because the actual act of action does need to move forward and will usually contain these commandments. Of course, I always like to say this, though, I do not believe in one way of writing. I think that there are various ways to learn how to write. I think that these commandments are tools that have helped elevate my level of understanding on an analysis level of understanding why a story moves forward or why a character is developed, because we learn most about characters through how they make decisions. And we need to know that plot is challenging them. But I also think that the goal here is not paralysis of analysis. The goal is to give you something that might be useful and not to kill the story with paralysis of analysis. So, sure, yeah.
1: I also think that the two last lines of the first two chapters are critical as well, not just from establishing tone and character,
0: but they're hooks. They're plot yes. hooks. They are. They are. Yep. And that's why I always tell writers to plot in scenes, not chapters, because a chapter might not be a scene. A chapter can, two chapters can be a scene. In this case, this is how I place it. So I think that that's the thing. Like if you are a plotter, plot out scenes because scenes need to have commandments, but a chapter might not necessarily need commandments, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So the climax then is the direct action a character takes on their crisis. Wait, can we skip crisis? Oh, well, so you kind of said it. So the crisis there, it's the question. You're right. (laughs) If the question is, will you be this television host or not? Her crisis is, do I take this position and give up my dream of research chemist because it pays better or do I stay a research chemist but struggle to support my daughter so yeah out of that she's very logical she chooses to take this position which of course sacrifices one of if not her greatest source of identity so I think you know definitely a difficult best bad choice to choose and then the resolution is everything that happens after that so basically we see what the character is where they're sitting, and how the story is moving forward. If you were to say, after she accepts the job, what do we see? That's where we get to the segue of everything about Lyndon B. Johnson and how she really has, she's not just a star, it's an institution. That's how big she is. They say it is not an exaggeration that when Elizabeth sits down to eat, the nation sits down to eat. That's where we are. But then, of course, we also understand chapter one, and that's why I tag it at the end of chapter two. Because we see two years into this job, she's depressed. She's certain that her life is over, but she won't do anything about that because this is what she does. She goes forward. This is how she's going to support her daughter. Yep. And that's this amazing opening to this amazing book. I don't really have any other notes. I don't know if you have any other notes that you'd like to share. But I love that you pulled in your inside chat with Bonnie as well, because that just makes it all the more engaging.
1: She was a delight. And I know she's working on another book. I'll leave you with that. Most of the notes that I had, we've ended up covering along the way, except one note about her voice that's established in the first two chapters. Elizabeth Zott is very funny, but unintentionally funny. Mm -hmm. She's funny by being the straight man character. Yes. And Bonnie and I talked about unintentional humor when we spoke and how it must be so hard to write that, right? Because it has to come across as not intentional and humor is hard to write in the first place. But so hard. That was key to this story as well. And and I also believe that one of the reasons this book has just gone gangbusters is that it's so fresh and unique. I can't think of a read-alike for it. I really can't. People ask me all the time okay, I just loved lessons in chemistry. Give me something else like that. And I don't have anything else to give.
0: (laughs) Here you have it. Read it again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love what you're saying about that. And humor is really difficult to write. And because she is the straight face, you know, I think that it's all those things, but we don't laugh at her, you know? It's more about about the situation of... uh, I'm a more laughing at
1: whoever she's speaking
0: to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why I like Mr. Pine. I actually really like his character. You're laughing has, at Mr.
1: Pine a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he has redeemable characteristics. That's the thing. Yes, it's later like on. Yeah. He is, you know, a typical example of someone, of a man in his time and his society. But he does want to be better and yeah. leading himself versus He has a boss. good heart. Right. He's right.
1: just did not know any better for a
0: while. Yeah, Exactly. But all of it's great. I so encourage you to, for the listeners out there, definitely go check out Sarah's podcast. Definitely listen to that episode with Bonnie. If you enjoyed this one, you're going to love that one. I'll include the link to that. And Sarah, just thank you so much for your time. I've loved getting to know you, and I so appreciate you hanging out with me. I know that these analysis episodes take a little longer than a normal episode, and I just so appreciate you being here with me and doing this.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a really fun exercise. It's made my brain work. And I am actually was thrilled to go back and revisit a book I love so much. So thank you. I've enjoyed getting to know you as well.
0: Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Lit Match. What a pleasure this was. I loved talking to Sarah. I loved hearing about everything that she discussed with Bonnie. And I'm really grateful for how it enriched the conversation and showed the beautiful relationship of a reader's reaction, as well as how writers like you can start to analyze their own stories and learn what resonates and moves readers, and then apply those lessons to your own writing. I also want to say thank you so much for anyone who has taken time to read and review the show or share it with a friend. I greatly appreciate Anytime that you can rate and review the show or share it with a friend, feel free to tag me at Abigail K. Perry, and I will be excited to repost that on my social media platforms. You can find this episode and all the episodes of Lit Match on my website, www.abigailkperry.com. And if you don't want to miss any future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the show and sign up for my email list. I'm always looking for more ways to reach and teach writers like you about the literary agent research process and how to grow their writing crafts. If you have recommendations, please email me, abigailkperry at gmail.com. I do my best to answer all of my emails. And thank you for supporting and hearing about this show. Until next time, persevere if you're deep into the writing process or even the beginning of it. I need to explore and uncover what your beautiful story is, what you're doing matters. And if you're in the query process, I know it can be tough and I know it's overwhelming, but I am here to support you. I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent and business partner for your writing career. And of course, celebrate your book when it comes out.